We've seen already, I trust in this chapter, some hugely significant truths and principles and some great practicalities. And God willing, we'll see some more this evening as we continue to make our way through this account in the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. I mentioned this morning that we would not, at that stage, pay too much attention to all of this cynical opposition that comes from the Pharisees, but that we would be considering that this evening. And that is going to be our starting point. And what I want to do is just point out a number of things that come up in this chapter regarding these Pharisees, which help us to see the nature of unbelief. The nature of unbelief. Now, they don't tell us everything, but they do tell us a lot. And what we can learn about the nature of unbelief in this chapter, let's seek to do that. Because you see, there are men in this story who actually are more blind than the blind man. You might have thought there was only one blind man in this story. Actually, there are many. Not just the Pharisees, there'll be others like them in the crowd. And in many ways... They're more blind than the obvious one. Just how hard the sinful heart can be is probably nowhere more clearly demonstrated than in these religious leaders who keep appearing throughout the gospel accounts who refused to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. The blind man, he cannot see. These men refuse to see. Now, some of you who know your theology might say, but Ian, surely because of their sinful condition, the Pharisees, just like the blind man, cannot see. They can't see because of their sin. You preach total depravity. You preach what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 regarding the natural man being unable to receive the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. And you'd be absolutely correct. But actually, these men even go beyond that. These men are not just unable to see. That is true of them. They are unable to see because of their sin. But they go beyond that because they are proactively opposing and rejecting Jesus. These men are feeding their unbelief. Have you seen images of an army at war and the soldiers do what they call digging in to hold their position? The infantry soldiers will dig a hole several feet deep. They'll put sandbags in front of themselves to afford themselves greater protection. They are actively taking action to do everything that they can not to be moved by the enemy. That's the Pharisees. With them, it is more than not being able to see. They actively refuse to see. And I want you to notice a few things that come out of this chapter about the nature of unbelief. Here's the first First part of verse 16, we read that this morning. Just flick back to there if you need to over the page. Verse 16. There they say, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And so 
That can't be his true identity. And what we see here is that they are establishing their own standards of assessment of Christ. They establish their own standards of assessment. The Pharisees have invented their own criteria for deciding whether or not this Jesus should be accepted. In the Pharisees' minds, they're thinking like this. We are convinced that regarding the issue of the Sabbath, our understanding of it is correct. We have the correct position on this issue. Jesus does not fit that position. Therefore, he is the one who is in error. And so they've established their own criteria for assessing Jesus. And people still do that today because that's the nature of unbelief. And they do so from all kinds of positions and based upon all kinds of topics, whether it's science, whether it's philosophy, whether it's ethics, whether it's gender, whether it's sexuality, whether it's marriage, whatever the position is, they establish their own position they convince themselves that they must be correct. And so anyone who does not fall in line with them must be wrong, just like the Pharisees did. And that's what people all around us will do. They've established their own position and they use their position to assess and evaluate the things that we tell them about Christ. But we also discover in the second half of verse 16 that they become divided in their opinions. Because even amongst the Pharisees, they weren't all agreed. Because there were some who said, hang on a minute. If this man is a sinner, how can he do this? Thinking about the blind man and all the other things that they've either witnessed or heard of. And even amongst the Pharisees are saying, hang on, is, is there not some contradiction here? If we're trying to suggest that he's a sinner and yet he's doing all of these things it was Jesus who said that a house divided cannot stand what have we been witnessing in parliament for endless months men and women divided in their opinions even those who are on the same side of the house the true mark of the church of Christ by comparison and contrast the church of Christ becomes united in the truth. It is truth that unites believers more so than love, actually. Love is very necessary. Love is vital. Love is what drives the way in which we react and respond with one another. It isn't actually love that unites us. It's the truth that unites. We're of one mind. We're of one opinion regarding the Bible and the gospel and Christ. Are we not? The very fact that these men are so divided and so diverse in their opinions, that actually reveals their unbelief and the nature of them. It's the nature of unbelief. 
and they are bewildered that although they desperately want to reject Christ, there are things about Jesus that they just cannot explain away. They would love to be able to, but they can't. If we insist that Jesus is a fraud, how do we explain the blind man who sees? These are things that you'll continue to find in many people today. It's really helpful to be aware of them. And as we'll go on to see, it's very helpful to discover the kind of response that you need to bring. Because as we're going to see, a very simple, faithful response is all that's necessary. We're going to see that from the blind man who now sees. What we also see in terms of unbelief is we see them trying to dismantle the entire claim by attempting to deny the starting point. Now, some of you immediately will recognize uh, this theme. See, the thinking of the men goes like this. The way to deny that this man has received his sight is to insist that he was never blind in the first place. It just didn't happen. Not the way he says And so they have the audacity to go to this man's parents in verses 18 and 19 and say, who you say was blind. Because they want to undermine the whole principle from the very beginning. And so people will try to dismiss the Bible in similar ways. They'll they'll try to dismiss all the miracles in the Bible in a similar way. These things are exaggerations in the Bible. These things are misdirections. These things are sleight of hand. These things are coincidence. Either it never really happened at all or it's got a very simple, natural explanation that's just become embellished over time. Raising people from the dead? Well, of course, they never had actually died. So all of them? Well, it was just either a cleverly staged illusion or Jesus just got lucky each time. They were never actually dead. Let's go back to the starting point and just get rid of that. His own resurrection from the dead, the same thing. He was never really dead. Because in saying those things, no one, none of them have ever actually disproved the claims of Scripture. Not once. Just as they cannot succeed in disproving this man's claim of having been blind from birth. Now his parents insist that he was born blind but they're fearful of the threats that are now being made. They're mentioned in verse 22. And the threat that's coming from all the religious leaders of their day is that anyone confessing Jesus as the Messiah will be excommunicated from Jewish society. That means they won't be able to go to the local synagogue. It would mean they won't be able to go to the temple in Jerusalem and celebrate all the feasts. They would be outcasts amongst their family and friends and neighbours. They would be like spiritual lepers within their towns and villages. And so now we see that the Pharisees have resorted to threats and intimidation. And verse 24, declaring that this man who is the truth, Jesus, this man who goes about doing such good, Jesus, 
He is the sinner in all of this. Threats, intimidation, and accusations that he is the sinner. And unbelief behaves in exactly the same way today. The same is being directed at Christians today. Threats, intimidation, unless you comply with the world's agenda. Some Christians feel it more than others, but it's there because nothing has changed. The way that unbelieving people respond to God's truth and the way that unbelieving people treat God's people has never changed. Just as it was in the scriptures. And after repeatedly questioning the man from verse 24, all they can resort to at verse 34 is, who are you to lecture us? And they throw him out and they excommunicate him. Their protests and arguments have got them absolutely nowhere. And they've made no impression whatsoever against the claims of this man concerning what Jesus has done. And I want you to be encouraged by this. Because this kind of opposition and oppression, this is how Jesus said it would be for those who follow him in terms of the reaction of the sinful world against those who are in God's kingdom. But notice too that no matter what they say, no matter how angry they become, they cannot actually deconstruct or refute this man's testimony. No matter how they try, they can't do it. They would love to, but they're unable to. All they can do is voice their displeasure and disagreement and hold up this man for public derision. And people love to do that to Christians today. And increasingly, as we stand for Christ, as we stand in the truth of God's word, as we hold firm on all that the word of God tells us is true and right and good, the displeasure and disagreement of the world against us is almost certainly going to increase. Almost certainly we'll be held up for public derision more and more. But one thing they will never be able to do is deconstruct or refute your testimony of what God has done for you. Never. And here's something even more remarkable and more encouraging. Secondly, even as this man once blind, even as he is the object of such intense opposition, we discover that this man is on the path to faith in Christ. And the opposition doesn't stop it. He's on the path to faith in Christ, even in the midst of such intense opposition. It cannot shake him. It cannot stop, it cannot stop God doing by his spirit what he's doing in the life of this man. Back in verse 11, we find the blind man 
referring to the Lord Jesus Christ simply as a man called Jesus. That's what Jesus is to him at that point. A man called Jesus. In verse 15, he gives testimony about what Christ has done. He put clay on my eyes. He did it. I washed and I see. In verse 17, he's no longer calling Jesus simply a man. He's calling Jesus a prophet. He is God's man. This blind man's making spiritual progress and he's making it quickly, even in the face of such hostility. Isn't that an encouragement? As this man recalls what it is that Jesus has done, as he thinks it through, as he listens to how these men are trying to interpret it, the truth about Jesus for him is becoming clearer. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 25. The man admits there are things he does not know. There are questions he cannot answer. You'll find yourself in that position and you should admit as such. If there are things that you don't know, well, you tell them, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that one. Some of you worry that such an admission will weaken your testimony. I have to be able to answer all of their questions. No, you don't. You don't. Be encouraged. You don't. Let me tell you what I do know. You can all do that. Let me tell you what I do know. That's it. That's Christian testimony. That's sharing the gospel. Let me tell you what I do know about Christ. Answer the questions you can answer by all means. But remember this. In Christian testimony, in gospel work, in evangelism, the onus is not on you to answer all their questions. The onus is on them to decide how they are going to respond to Christ and the demands of the gospel that you put in front of them. Let me say that again, because this will take so many burdens off your shoulders. The onus is not upon you to answer all of their questions. Answer what questions you can by all means. But that is not the onus that's upon you. The onus that's upon you is to tell them about Christ. Let me tell you what I do know about him. Let me tell you what he's done for me. And the onus then is upon them to decide how they are going to respond to the gospel. How they are going to respond to Christ. That's where the onus lies, on them. That's the issue. And then in verses 35 to 38, we have this glorious record of Jesus dealing so gently and so compassionately with this man as he guides him to believing faith. And the last thing that we read about this, this man once blind 
is that he's worshipping in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no better place to leave him. We don't know anything else. But there's no better thing to know. This man is not just a prophet. This man is the Son of God. This man is God himself. The promised one, the chosen one, the anointed one, the appointed one, the saviour. I believe. And he worships him. Well, we don't know what happened in the rest of this blind man's life. But wow, we know he's in a good place. There's no better place for him to be. There's no better place for us, for us to leave him in the story. And here's our final encouragement from this passage. The growth in faith in the face of opposition. The growth in faith in the face of opposition. Now let's consider this blind man. He's probably not had the kind of schooling that most boys have had. Don't think they had special educational needs coordinators back in Jesus' day. I don't think so. I don't think they'd invented Braille so that he could go to school and still read books. What kind of intellectual clout will this blind man who just begged for a living what kind of intellectual clout will he have compared to the Pharisees? Surely, a man like him is just going to crumple and collapse under their withering attack. Not at all. The Spirit of God's at work in this man. He has the most simple of testimonies and he has the most basic understanding imaginable. But God has chosen the weak and the simple things to confound those who think they are wise and strong. And this blind man is a brilliant example of it. This former blind man is able to see the most basic and obvious truth. And he demonstrates that in verses 30 to 33. Well, it's, this is wonderful, he says to the Pharisees, that you don't know where he's from, but he's just opened my eyes. You're supposed to be the clever ones. You're supposed to be the intelligent ones. You're supposed to be the ones who know the scriptures and you can't work it out. It's as clear as day to me. It's obvious that God has heard the prayers of this man. He's no sinner. Now, of course, just before, he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Suddenly he's convinced now. There's no way this man can be a sinner. Not, not, he's growing all the time in faith. He's growing all the time in understanding. Wh whoever has healed a man born blind. Verse 33 is the crunch, isn't it? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And his faith is growing all the time, even in front of these men 
How could God be choosing to work like this through this man, Jesus, if he's the sinner you say he is? And as this man shares his testimony, his faith grows. As they ramp up the opposition, his faith grows and he stands firm. And he repeats what he believes and he believes it even more. And he repeats what he believes and he believes it even more. In your weakness, you will know God's strength too, just like him. Take great encouragement from the example and story of this blind man. And by contrast, you see, these Pharisees, they are simply entrenching themselves in their blindness. Those who know they are blind, they are the ones who receive sight. Those who think they have sight only become more blind. That's verse 39. Those who know they're blind, they are the ones who receive their sight. Those who think they've got sight only become more blind. Surely, you can't mean us, ask the Pharisees in verse 40. Now what's the meaning of verse 41? It's a little bit wordy. Even if you've got a more modern translation like the NIV, it's still a bit wordy. And it, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. What's Jesus saying? Well, you'd be glad to know what he's saying is actually very simple and straightforward. If you were like this man, blind once, but now having received sight from me, your sins would no longer be an issue. You would no longer have the sin of unbelief for one thing. And you would be in the place of knowing that your sins are forgiven. But you are convinced that you are the ones who have sight when in fact you are the blind ones. And so you are still in your sins. And how is it with you this evening? This whole chapter is about seeing and not seeing. How is it with you? When you look at the page of Scripture, and when you read of the Lord Jesus Christ, who do you see?